Hey, Ultrasounds listeners, would you like a chance to win a $50 Amazon gift card? Fill out our feedback survey. More info at the end of this episode. Hello and welcome to Ultrasounds, a podcast by OBGYN Delivered. I'm Rachel. And I'm Teresa. Today is our second episode in a two-part series on pediatric and adolescent gynecology. We are thrilled to have Dr. Monica Rosen joining us again. For those of you who didn't meet her in our first episode, Dr. Rosen is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan Medical School. She received her medical degree from the University of Wisconsin and then completed her residency in OBGYN and fellowship in pediatric and adolescent gynecology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Rosen has special interest and training in the gynecologic issues of girls and young women, and specifically in girls with bleeding disorders. Dr. Rosen, we are so happy to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here again. Awesome. And again, this is our second episode in our series on pediatric and adolescent gynecology. If you missed our first one, go check it out. Um, But today's topic is pediatric gynecologic emergencies. So we will go ahead and jump into our first case. So we have a four-year-old girl who was brought to your pediatric gyne clinic for one day of vaginal bleeding. Her mother states she noticed spots of blood in the child's underwear after changing. She denies any falls or trauma, stating she was with the mother all day. You examine the patient and find a donut-like annular mass at the vaginal introitus. What is the most likely diagnosis? Okay, so I'll start again just thinking broad picture. So this four-year-old girl, she's premenarchal and she has vaginal bleeding. So when I hear that, the first thing that comes to mind is actually trauma or falls, especially on bicycles. Those are, you know, falling off a bicycle is an easy way to cause hymen perforation or even a vulvar hematoma, which may cause something a little bit like a mass or some bleeding. Um, However, for this patient, you know, the mom said no trauma, no falls. The other thing I want to think about is any ulcers or lesions on kind of the perineal skin or vulvar area. Remember, premenarchal girls can get lichen sclerosis, just like post-menopausal women can. It's about below estrogen levels. And so premenarchal girls could have lichen sclerosis. Um, They can also get something called like aphthous ulcers. Um, so it's important to kind of look at the skin as well. And to that end, you know, it's always important to not forget about the potential for abuse. And so um, you want to kind of have that in the back of your mind and looking for any signs of that because you would hate to miss um, a case of child abuse where you may have been able to intervene. Moving on a little bit more to the specific case in the mass that we see. So for her mass, this donut-like annular mass of the vaginal introitus this is what urethral prolapse may actually look like in a child. And this is a really tough case um, because this is not as dramatic as what we may see in like a cystocele in an older woman where, you know, you have kind of that bulging of the anterior vaginal wall. But you can imagine that the skin um, in this area is really friable and protruding into the vagina, which allows it to kind of bleed a little bit, which, you know, can cause the spotting that the mom saw on the toilet paper. Dr. Rosen, what do you think of this case? This is a great case. And this is something we see all the time as pediatric and adolescent gynecologists. And the important thing to remember is that this is not a true emergency. Oftentimes, young girls come in with vaginal bleeding and 
practitioners get very nervous because most generalists don't see this all the time. Um, but it, what's important to remember is most of the time, any little girl with vaginal bleeding does not have a true emergency. And th these are things that can be handled as outpatients. So I think, Teresa, your differential was great. You mentioned skin dis disorders like lichen sclerosis, trauma, falls, um, of course, some kind of mass on the perineum. One other thing that we sometimes think about might be a foreign body um, and, of course, abuse, as you mentioned. So in terms of urethral prolapse in a young girl, we find this condition in premenarchal girls and often also postmenopausal women due to the decreased estrogen level. So it's something to just keep in mind that is there and it's pretty obvious when you do an exam um, and you can kind of see this prolapsing urethra. So one follow-up question we did have, so we don't often see these conditions in girls or really are counseled on how to do pelvic exams on children. So we were just wondering what tips you might have about doing a physical exam on younger um, girls. Sure. So it's very important to remember that these young girls are incredibly anxious. The last thing they want is a vaginal exam. Um, so it's important to make them feel comfortable however you're able to. Oftentimes we'll have a young girl sit on her mom or dad's lap. Um, we sort of ask them to put their legs out in a butterfly or frog leg position. Um, and I always you know, put a sheet over their, their legs to drape them, to make them feel that they're as covered as possible. And then what you do is you use your uh, gloved hand to retract or pull forward their labia bilaterally in order to open up the um, introitus to, to really sort of see the edges of the hymen and see the urethra and see if there's anything um, in the vagina that needs to be seen. S typically, you can, you know, walk through this with a young patient and again, remind her, I'm only allowed to do this because I'm a physician and your mom or your dad is here with you. No one else should ever be allowed to um, see your private area. So there's also some education here. If you are having trouble sort of doing this and seeing what you need to see, sometimes you can have the girl go onto her hands and knees so you can examine her um, in that position and that can sort of open up the hymen um, a little bit more. Uh, you never wanna place anything inside of the vagina. You never wanna touch the hymen. This is an extremely sensitive area. You obviously never wanna use speculum. Um, but these are sort of the different positions that we use to, to, to kind of see what we need to see. Thank you. That's really helpful. And we can go ahead and go into our next case. So we have a four-year-old girl brought to your pediatric gyne clinic for foul smelling vaginal discharge. Her mom states that their pediatrician gave them antibiotics that helped initially, but the discharge came back. What is on the top of your differential? Okay. So this case is actually pretty similar to our last one in that we have another four-year-old girl coming in with her mom. This time, instead of the bleeding, though, we have discharge, and it's foul-smelling discharge. Um, you know, and some, something we do in medicine sometimes is, you know, see what it gets, what makes it better, what makes it worse. And in this case, antibiotics seem to help the discharge. So I'm thinking about infectious things. Um, so I'm thinking about infectious things that may um, be treated with antibiotics. Foul-smelling discharge also kind of points to something possibly infectious. 
At this age, too, four years old, we want to think about foreign bodies, just like Dr. Rosen mentioned in our last case. So, you know, just like you would learn on your pediatrics rotation about kids swallowing a coin or putting some sort of foreign body in their ear or up their nose, this can happen in the gynecology field as well. Young girls can put something up into their vagina. It can cause um, some sort of local infection, and she may get this foul-smelling vaginal discharge. Dr. Rosen, what makes you suspicious for a foreign body? Yeah, so uh, I agree. Anytime that a girl has discharge, especially if it's green or yellow and um, perhaps has an odor, and then the antibiotics make it go away, but then it comes right back after the antibiotics are done, we think about a foreign body. Sometimes if a girl has just learned to become potty trained and she, or has just learned how to wipe herself, she can get a little piece of toilet paper in the, stuck in the vagina. So this is not, you know, a little toy that she's placing in the vagina, but just something that happened due to um, the nature of, of where she is in her development. Sometimes girls who like to take a bath with bath toys, if they have little bath toys, they're sort of exploring the area and sometimes they may place something in there. If a girl can tolerate it in clinic, which is rare for a four-year-old, we can do something called a lavage where we take a syringe and we in, essentially insert warm saline into the vagina to try to flush out any foreign body or little piece of toilet paper that may be causing this from happening. If the patient cannot tolerate this in clinic, and <clears throat> most of the time they cannot, then we would proceed to the operating room where we would give them anesthesia and perform a vaginoscopy. So we take a little camera, we look inside of the vagina after we fill it with saline, we find the foreign body, whether it's, um, you know, we've seen all sorts of foreign bodies. Um, we remove it with graspers or just with inserting a lot of saline to kind of flush it out. Um, and then typically once we do that and we remove it, the child is fine and the discharge is gone. Great. Thank you for that overview on how you would treat if there was a foreign body. So we can move on to our next case. So here we have a 14-year-old girl who's referred to your clinic from her pediatrician for pelvic pain. She is premenarchal and has been having worsening cramping for the past nine months. On exam, you note she has Tanner stage five breast development and pubic hair. On exam, you see a bulging hymen with a bluish hue. On ultrasound, you see a large hypoechoic mass. What is on the top of your differential? Okay, so this sounds a little bit different. This girl is 10 years older at 14. And so I'm thinking about where she might be in development. Uh, so I know she hasn't had menses yet. However, she is 14 and the average age of menarche is about 11 or 12. And so I'm a little suspicious there. Another thing that I'm picking up on is that the exam finds she's Tanner stage five. And if you remember in our last PEGS episode, we talked about how breast development is usually around Tanner stage two, and then menarche is around Tanner stage four. So the fact that she's stage five, it sounds like she probably should have undergone menarche already. So um, I'm a little suspicious of that. And then also just how she's describing the pain, kind of the quality of this pain. It's cramping, which sounds a lot like periods. However, it's getting worse and worse. So moving on to the exam, I think this is really where we can nail the diagnosis. So hypoechoic on an ultrasound usually means fluid. And so what I'm thinking could be going on pathophysiologically here is that she is menstruating and there is blood that is backing up in the uterus and not 
um, able to leave the vagina. And so when we see the bulging hymen with the bluish hue on exam, that is what is preventing that all that blood from escaping the body. And so this is what um, we would call an imperforate hymen. Dr. Rosen, how would you approach this case? Yeah, so I think anytime that we see cyclic cramping in a girl who has standard stage five, Tanner stage five um, breast development, we, and pubic hair, we think, is there an obstruction that is not allowing menstrual blood to flow? And so you, the first thing that you would do is do an exam. And in this case, it's a pretty obvious diagnosis because you see a bulging hymen, which makes you think that there's um, blood behind the hymen. In this case, there's no hymenal opening for the blood to to come out. And so, um, you know, I I think that this is something really important for generalists to recognize, and I think most do. The one thing that is interesting about this is that while this needs to be taken care of quite soon, it does not need to be taken care of emergently. Sometimes you can get away with suppressing these girls on birth control pills to suppress them from continuing to have menses that's not that has no outlet until you can get them to the operating room to perform a surgery. So if you see them in the middle of the night in the emergency room, if you are able to take them, that's great. But if for some reason you are unable to take them, that's okay. And they can wait a little bit longer. You just need to suppress them with, um, with birth control pills. When you take them to the OR, essentially you just make a hole in the hymen, usually copious amount of old brown appearing thick blood comes out of the vagina and uh, they feel a lot of relief immediately after the surgery. There's several different techniques to do the uh, hymenectomy. Um, None of them are better than the other. The important thing is that you just make an egress for this blood to come out. Great. Thank you. So we have our fourth case here, which is similar. So we have a 14 year old girl who's referred to your clinic from her pediatrician for pelvic pain. She's premenarchal and has been having worsening cramping for the past nine months. On exam, you note she has Tanner stage five breast development and pubic hair, but pelvic exam reveals a normal hymen and no bulges. You order an MRI, which reveals enlargement and enhancement of the uterus, as well as a shriveled right kidney. What is the top of your differential in this case? Okay. So like Rachel said, this is very similar to our last case. So I'm just going to kind of point out the differences here. First, the pelvic exam. So we have a normal hymen. It's not bulging. It doesn't have that bluish hue. There's no kind of fluctuant mass. So my suspicion for an imperforate hymen is much lower. And then on obtaining the MRI, um, we seem to kind of have a similar issue though of this fluid level attenuation. Uh, which could again be blood backing up kind of in the uterus, but it's not from an imperforate hymen. So we'll have to think about what that could be, what could be causing that. There's also this new kidney abnormality. Um, So is this just an incidental finding? Is this related, a separate problem? Those are all questions I want to ask as well. So at the end of the day, we're, we're concerned about some sort of obstruction that's not an imperforate hymen. She has a normal exam. So what this makes me think of is actually a transverse vaginal septum, which is, again, kind of blocking that menstrual blood from egressing from her body and causing kind of this cyclic cramping pain. 
Dr. Rosen, how do you think about this, especially in comparison to the, our last case? Yeah, so I think, Teresa, you summed it up quite well. This is very similar to the last case, except her exam is completely different because you can see her hymen very clearly and it is wide open um, with no obstruction. And so you have to think about an obstruction somewhere higher up along the way. And so most commonly, this is consistent with the transverse vaginal septum, although there are other anomalies that can exist as well, like cervical agenesis. But let's talk about a transverse vaginal septum. These can be high, they can be low, they can be thick, they can be thin. The operative management is vastly different from an imperfect hymen because the tissue is different. And if you don't perform this surgery correctly, the tissue can reconstrict down and close right back up. So it's really important that this is done by a trained gynecologist who knows how to do this surgery. Oftentimes, I've seen time and time again, patients from outside facilities who come in and a provider thinks that they have uh, an imperforate hymen because of this backed up blood and they make a nick in what they think is the hymen and they expect blood to come pouring out, but actually the patient has a thick transverse vaginal septum. And so they keep cutting and cutting and cutting and nothing is coming out. And they don't realize that this is actually not an imperfect hymen, but it's something completely different. Or they'll make the, they'll finally get to the, to open this tissue. And then the septum closes right back up because they don't um, remove the entire septum and then tie the mucosa to the mucosa where it needs to be connected. The other important thing to know about the um, management of this is that girls have to wear a dilator for several months after this surgery to keep that um, tissue from not uh, constricting back down and closing back up. So it is more involved. Oftentimes a 14-year-old girl does not want to dilate this area or wear a dilator at night and so we will place them on birth control pills until they are ready to handle that dilation process. In this case, another thing that makes it unique is that she happens to have a, an absent or shriveled right kidney. And so we think about another anomaly called OVIRA, obstructed hemivagina ipsilateral renal anomaly. And so what this is, is actually has to do with having an oblique septum, so it's not a transverse septum, and having an absent right kidney. And in this situation, the tissue from the oblique septum is not like a transverse septum. So when you do perform this surgery, the, the girl does not need to dilate like you would in a trans, with a transverse septum. The other um, thing to note about OVIRA is that a girl typically presents with um, having had menstruation already, perhaps for six months, perhaps for a year, but they have a uterine stidelphus. So they are menstruating out of one of their uterine cavities, but the other one is obstructed by this oblique septum. And so they end up um, having hematocolpos from this, this one obstructed half, but the other half is wide open. So it's just something else that we, that we see um, we see it obviously more commonly than others as uh, pediatric gynecologists, but just some, you know, just something to be aware of that there are all sorts of Wallerian anomalies out there. So, um, you know, always double check when you think you know what's going on, that that's actually what you're dealing with. Great. Thank you for that overview. So we have one more case for this episode. A three-year-old girl is brought to your clinic for vaginal bleeding. 
Her mom states she started complaining about belly pain a week ago. Her mom noted some blood on her underwear while doing laundry. What are you concerned about in this case? Okay, so we are back to the premenarchal girls and again with vaginal bleeding. So this sounds similar to our very first case of urethral prolapse. However, she also has um, belly pain. And so one thing that is rare, but also a very common test question, actually, for those of you who are taking shelf exams and the USMLE exams. So something that is important to think about is sarcoma botrytis. So the classic exam finding is the grape-like mass bulging from the vagina, but they can grow actually really fast and not necessarily protruding from the vagina because they're growing up in the abdominal cavity, which could explain why this girl has quote-unquote belly pain. And so again, like I mentioned, it is rare, but it is the most common type of embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma. So something to definitely be aware of, not only for all the exams that you will take over your career, but also um, when you're thinking about premenarchal girls with vaginal bleeding. Dr. Rosen, have you ever have you ever seen the sarcoma botrytis? I have seen it once, and it was in a slightly older patient, which is rare. Um, but it it presented as these sort of cysts or um, kind of like polyps inside of the vagina in the case that I saw. Um, and the patient presented with vaginal bleeding. And um, this is something that it can present even as just a couple tiny little cysts hanging out of the hymen or just inside of the hymen. So this is the one true emergency in this age population of young girls presenting with vaginal bleeding that you don't want to miss. And so it is very important to take these cases of girls with vaginal bleeding seriously just because of this. Thankfully, this is treatable now with chemotherapy and radiation. Um, and there, the five-year survival is over 95%, but it is um, you know, something that you definitely don't want to miss. Thank you for that. So that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rosen. We really appreciate you taking the time. It was really great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can subscribe to Ultrasounds wherever you get your podcasts. For more high-yield topic reviews and recent news, you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at OBGYN underscore delivered or find more topic review outlines and free question banks at our website, www.obgindelivered.com. And always remember, we put in the labor so you can deliver. Hey listeners, thanks for listening to this episode of Ultrasounds. Would you like the chance to win a $50 Amazon gift card? Fill out our feedback survey linked in the description of this podcast. Participation in this survey is voluntary and responses will be used to better ultrasounds for audience members like you. The survey takes less than five minutes to complete and will invite you to enter into a raffle for a $50 gift card upon your submission. OBGYN Delivered appreciates your feedback.